Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Heather Shea. Today we're talking about using assessment practices for social justice, and I am thrilled to be joined by Drs. Gavin Henning and Ann Lundquist. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the social medias. Today's episode is sponsored by Anthology. Is your goal to engage in effective assessment, boost data fluency, and empower staff with strategic data collection, document analysis, and use of results for change? No matter where your campus is in the assessment journey, Anthology, formerly Campus Labs, can help you figure out what's next with a short assessment. You'll receive customized results and tailored recommendations to address your most immediate assessment needs. Learn more about how Anthology's products and expert consultation can empower your division with actionable data by visiting campuslabs.com SA-now. So as I mentioned, I'm your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I am broadcasting from East Lansing, Michigan, near the campus of Michigan State University. MSU occupies the ancestral homelands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples. Now, let's get on with our conversation. So first, let's meet our, our guest today. As each of you introduce yourselves, um, tell us a little bit about the ways in which your work and scholarship has intersected with both assessment practice and social justice through your career. Um, and Anne, I'm going to start with you. Welcome. Great. Thank you, Heather. And good to see you, Gavin. I'm Anne Lundquist. I use she, her, hers pronouns. And um, I'm a white, cisgender, third generation, able-bodied um, woman. And I live in Tucson, Arizona right now, which is the traditional land of the Tohono O'odham and Pasqua Yaqui nations. Um, for me, this has been a journey. I, I started out in student affairs and uh, res life, first year programming, um, dean of students. Um, but I'm also a, a yoga person, a yogi and um, a poet. And so a lot of these different ways of knowing have sort of come together for me. Um, and this intersection, and Gavin and I will talk a little bit more about this in a minute, is continuing to evolve for me. So I've been an assessment practitioner for quite a while. I currently do work at Anthology, formerly Campus Lab. So I talk to campuses, particularly about student affairs assessment, um, almost every day. So I'm excited to see this conversation evolving and growing in the field and to be able to talk with you about it today. Thank you so much for being here, Anne. Uh, Gavin, you and I have known each other for a really long time, but our audience may not know you. Um, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to be here. Uh, my name is Gavin Henning, and I use he, him, his pronouns. And I'm actually living and working in Hampton, New Hampshire, which is the traditional lands of the Abenaki, Penacook, Penacook, and Wabanaki Confederacy Nations. Um, but I have a connection to Michigan State, so that's another reason why we feel connected. And obviously, and having a connection to Michigan, like we're all Michiganders in that's some right. way or another. Um, so I'm a, a professor of higher education at New England College, which is a small private liberal arts institution in central New Hampshire, where I direct a master of higher ed um, administration program, as well as a doctoral program. Now, I've been, I started doing assessment back in 1997. 
and then started doing it full time in 2000. And so I've been doing assessment for a really long time. To be honest, I really hadn't thought about social justice, equity, inclusion too much, partly because I'm a white, heterosexual, cisgender man. I didn't have to. And so, you know, there was really no need for me because it, it was never an issue in my personal life until I got more involved in ACPA. So being in leadership positions in ACPA, and actually that's how Heather and I met. We were commission chairs long, long, long time ago. And then we both were on the governing board and through those, those roles with ACPA became more and more of an advocate for diversity, equity, and higher education. And being in leadership roles, I began to learn a lot more about it and realize there was some opportunities for connection. And those really came together, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, when Ann and I had a conversation a few years ago. Um, so it's now really kind of like two different, and Ann and I talk about the silos of assessment and diversity, equity, inclusion work. And that's kind of what it was for me until like everything kind of just happened together almost serendipitously. And I'm glad it happened that way. Well, I know this is going to be a fabulous conversation. And I've had conversations with both of you individually, but maybe the three of us haven't talked all together. So I'm also excited about that too. So Gavin, when you started thinking about this and exploring this topic, how did, how did this come together with Anne? Like, how did you start work doing this um, socially just equity centered assessment work together? Yeah, it was pretty organic. It actually goes back to a dinner conversation that she and I had in Philadelphia at the NASCA 2017 uh, conference. And so Anne was representing Anne or Campus Labs at that point. Um, and they do a member meeting on the Sunday of the NASPA um, conference. And so I was involved with CAS at that point. I think I was president-elect for CAS. And so I was going to represent CAS at that member meeting, just talk a little bit about um, some of the new products CAS was developing, as well as some of the, the collaborations that campus, that campus Labs and CAS were working on. So Ann and I met for dinner the night before just to kind of talk through what are the key talking points. And then, you know, once we got those out of the way, we kind of we talked about assessment because that's what assessment people do whenever they have free time. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was probably around the, the one paper around Eric from Eric Montenegro and Natasha Jankowski on culture responsive assessment. Mm -hmm. And I think we started talking about that. And then Ann said, well, I'm doing this session at ACPA next week on bias-free assessment. And we were kind of talking about what, what are the similarities and differences? And we we're like, we we're wondering, are they the same? Are they different? And so she said, well, why don't you join me next week to do this presentation? <laughs> so like, sure, I'll go, I'll do it. And the presentation was at eight o'clock in the morning and the room was filled. Mm -hmm. And so it was pretty clear that there was some interest in the topic. And then actually a couple months later, I was invited to write a chapter for the new contested issues in student affairs book um, that Peter and uh, Marshall Magold are working on. And the focus was really about equity, safety, and civility from different vantage points. And so they asked me to write about um, equity you know, assessment from a, an equity, civility, and safety perspective. But rather than talking about how do you assess those programs, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper. And, and really the conversation that Ann and I had really promoted me to look a little bit deeper and kind of explore some of the underpinnings of assessment and really kind of learn about what some of the limitations are. And we'll talk about that in a little bit in regard to culture and actually some, some research paradigms. And so I think all these pieces came together around the th same three or four month period. And when I came up with this, when I was writing about this idea of what I called um, deconstructed assessment, Anne and I began wondering, is there like this continuum, this framework that we could create really more to help us understand, but we knew it'd be helpful for other people. So we kind of both went on our own ways, um, doing research, learning more, you know, and went a lot deeper into the indigenous ways of knowing and indigenous paradigm. I kind of did a little bit more around universal design. So we keep on learning more, uh, but then we keep on coming back together and kind of sharing what we know and the kind of building this, um, this knowledge base that um, from that, just that one organic conversation um, back in March in 2017. 
So it's fascinating to me because I've I've uh, been involved in assessment initiatives on my campus, and and like you just said, um, it seems like they're two separate conversations happening simultaneously, and yet those two things don't come together. Um, and when you talk about assessment, both with po folks who are doing it on their campuses, and and then with people who you're engaging with in at NASA and ACPA, what are some of the terms and um, language that comes up, and how do we know that there's a different, like, what are the difference between bias-free assessment versus assessment and socially just or equity-centered? I mean, we, we can talk right. about the continuum a little bit here. So there's a, there's so much here to unpack. And first of all, I'll self-disclose. I have an MFA in creative writing poetry um, before my PhD. And so I'm always, a, like, I really think about words and language a lot. And like, you know, a word is a placeholder, and but it represents so much more. And it's also only one way of knowing, communicating verbally or in, in the written language. So um, first of all, what you said is very true. There's this like ass assessment bubble is what we think of it as. And then this like diversity, equity, and inclusion bubble. And in there, there's scholarship, there's the people and practitioners, there's the colleagues on the campus that are often, you know, collegial and friendly with one another, but their work doesn't always intersect and overlap. Um, they're unaware of each other's um, even terminology and language. So uh, uh, one example, when we do this uh, pre-conference at NASPA and ACPA, we ask people to stand up and sort of place themselves along a continuum around their diversity, equity, inclusion, what we call skills, knowledge, and competencies, and their assessment competencies. And it's just very interesting because assessment practitioners are sort of still in this learning mode around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the DEI folks are really experts, you know, they're trainers, uh, and they're like, oh, no, I'm terrified of assessment. You know, so it's just interesting to watch even those cultures, right? Um, what I've noticed is that, um, there, first of all, there's no real terminology. If you try to do a Google search, if you try to do a lit review, um, it's tricky because people are using lots of different language. So in the evaluation field, um, this idea of um, having um, equity-centered evaluation, you know, that's sort of a long, more longstanding. Um, for, I think, higher ed student affairs in particular, um, it's definitely been very separate. So... Um, I think we're all kind of learning as we go. The continuum where Gavin and I sort of landed and we're, I don't know, I think this is very fluid still, is that you know on one end there's causing harm, right? There's actually like, I'm unaware, I'm unintentional. I, I don't think, I don't even know these two things have anything to do with each other. And therefore by my practice, I am actually causing harm uh, through my assessment work. And then on the far end of the continuum are things like I'm actively using assessment, not just to conduct climate studies, but to uh, actually dismantle um, systems of power and oppression to really unpack and look at privilege. I'm, I'm actually using it for social justice decolonization. And in the middle, there's all kinds of practices along the way. And we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit about what some of those are, but I think the field is kind of exploding right now with people trying this on for size in all different ways on campus. And I'm excited to see that. Yeah, yeah. At Michigan State University, as as both of you know, because I've talked with you about it, we, you know, we are really trying to, I think, come up with some larger strategic planning initiatives around DEI as well as around assessment. And and it's it, it's um, striking to me sitting on one of the subcommittees that's looking at student success and composition, how even just the way that we collect and report on data, um, you know, can be in that kind of harm causing versus like right. what metrics really matter and count? Um, and then how do we gather better, better data to make better adjustments or um, recommendations to upper administration? Um, 
but I think all of that is based around a, a culture on, on the campus, right? Whether it's an assessment, a culture of assessment, I know we hear, or whether it's an inclusive culture. Um, so Gavin, you talked a little bit about this idea, idea of unpacking the culture. You know, what do you mean by that? And what does an equity-centered assessment culture look like? Sure. And just how um, Anne's background or MFA informs her work doing this, my, I have a, um, also have a master's degree in sociology that I got after my, uh, uh, my master's in higher administration. And that I always kind of take a look, a sociological view about all the work I'm doing. And so once we began talking about this, I really I wanted to dig deeper into this idea about what, what impact does culture have? Because it really is kind of, we don't think about it. You know, culture, the, the norms, the values, the assumptions, the beliefs, the biases, the, the language that we use. And there are multiple layers of that. You know, institutional, there's institutional culture, even within an institution, there are multiple cultures at the department level, at the program level. You know, we certainly know in higher ed, the culture in student affairs is very different than it is in academic affairs. And that causes some challenges. Even geographically, you know, I think about, you know, being back in Michigan, in the, the term pop, versus soda out, out here. Their, their language is different, some of the assumptions. Um, and what we began talking about is what undergirds all of those assumptions? And they're really our systems of power and oppression. You know, we think about the image we present as this, this iceberg. Above the water are the, those things that we can see, we can hear, the, those, the, the language we use, those, some of those norms. But underneath, are all those sisters of power and oppression. So heteronormativity, um, cis cisgenderism, white supremacy, all of the isms. And what's problematic is that those systems of power and oppression unconsciously impact our culture, which then impacts how we implement assessment. And so in many ways, we're doing this unintentionally. You know, so we're not doing it to harm, but we're causing harm. And as we talk about a lot in higher ed, just because there's not intention doesn't mean there's not negative impact. And so we, we realized we really kind of needed to dig a little bit deeper from the surface and move below just procedures. And Jan MacArthur talks about this as well. And she's one of the first to talk about socially just assessment is that you, we have to look beyond procedures if we're going to make, if we're gonna actually use assessment for social justice. If we're just looking to do socially just assessment, we can focus on those procedures and do it in an equitable way. But if we're actually going to use assessment as a vehicle for social justice, we need to really dig deeper and look at that culture so we can change some of those systems of power and oppression. So we can actually be conscious of how those systems of power and oppression impact the language we use in surveys, the, 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 the biases we may have when we do interviewing. Um, so that really, you have to unpack that to really kind of dig a little bit deeper and make sure we're not um, continuing to perpetuate those systems of power and oppression um, through our assessment more. That's really helpful. Um, yeah, I think it's been interesting having, you know, served in student affairs administrative leadership roles on a couple of different campuses and just, you know, as you all are talking about this, kind of thinking about like, well, what was that institution's culture around both assessment and inclusion like, and how might those two things have complemented um, one another? Um, and I think that when we get back to kind of the idea potentially of assessment um, causing harm or mm -hmm. marginalizing students who are already marginalized, and, and can you talk a little bit about how some assessment practices on some campuses um, might, might create systems that further marginalize students that are already marginalized, um, either because they just aren't counted um, is one of the assumptions that I guess I'm making, um, for example, you know, collecting data on who identifies as LGBTQ 
on our campus doesn't happen. So we don't know. And therefore then um, programs and systems and, and resources are allocated without that knowledge, um, unwittingly marginalizing um, that population. So tell me a little bit more about how those assessment approaches might, might create that on our campuses. Yeah, there's so much here. And I think we're learning more all the time. Um, one of the ways I organize it in my own head is um, what are the overall assessment things? And I know Gavin spends a lot of time when we do presentations on this talking about, he mentioned procedures and methods. We're even just unconscious about that. We uh, tend to gravitate towards quantitative approaches. We have um, ways in higher ed that we privilege sort of this Western way of knowing. Uh, we don't really capture lived experiences of students. We um, talk about the small N or the outlier. On, I mean, just the way that we approach it. And, and often we just, and that we're supposed to be objective, right? Um, I tend to probably lean initially more as a qualitative researcher than a quantitative, but um, I also know even there we get very proceed. We have, there's a lot of procedures around qualitative research. So it's not that we want to throw that baby out with the bathwater in it. There aren't ways in which procedures can happen, but it's really who's at the table when the decision about procedures are being made. Um, what assumptions are we just skipping over and moving to the data collection process uh, before we really spend time on on our own approach. Like we talked um, at the beginning here, we're three white people talking about equity and inclusion. Uh, I recognize that when, when I do that. And I think there's a place for that in the sense that I may have an area of expertise I can develop where I can encourage and talk to other white folks about my experience and therefore help them come to be more comfortable. There's things that I can't do as a white woman, right? And so that's where the stakeholder involvement and recognizing my own privilege and inviting others into the conversation in ways that doesn't further marginalize them, but that is actually empowering. So there's all of these things that are throughout the whole assessment process. But then when we get into the traditional assessment cycle itself, right? Um, determining outcomes, collecting our data, analyzing the results, using the results for change. There are many practices that um, are emerging. Um, C.G. Heiser from, uh, now Dr. C.G. Heiser from Western Michigan University, Director of Assessment there. Um, she and I just wrote a blog post and we did a, a worksheet that we can put in the resources. And we, we tried to unpack some reflection questions and some things to think about at each space around the assessment cycle. So. I mean, just a couple quick ones and Gavin can add others are just what approaches we're, we're gravitating towards and is that mindful or is it just sort of habit, right? Um, are we looking at other ways of knowing, indigenous methods, um, looking at universal design, um, thinking about uh, qualitative approaches and not just leaping to the survey. Um, and then when we get into our um, data collection, it has to do with, are we inviting students to the table? Are we, um, really thinking about it from their point of view and not just them as, I know we don't use the word subjects anymore, but we say participants and, you know, just even our language is really a very much like I'm in charge here and, and you're doing a thing that serves me. And if we're really talking about student success and using assessment, not just for social justice, but for the success of our students, which is a social justice activity, um, we need to probably unpack and rethink all the ways that we're going about that. Yeah, Gavin, can you go a little further on the yeah. different ways of knowing piece? Because I think that's fascinating too. Yeah. Oh, and well, this both Anne and I talk about this, the work of Sean Wilson and how mm -hmm. Sean Wilson transformed our way of thinking. And actually, a, a friend, yeah, 
colleague, a, a colleague of ours, Leslie D'Souza, who's actually uh, up in Canada, was the one who introduced me to Sean. And he's originally Canadian, but now he lives in Australia. And his that book that Anne just showed is um, his dissertation. Mm-hmm. He wanted to look at, I think he's, oh, I can't remember what tribe he's from. I have to look it up again. Um, but he really wanted to take a look at understanding indigenous populations. But when he started using Western approaches, he realized very quickly that they were in conflict with each other. You know, he said, even from the IRB process, because in the IRB process in, you know, here in the United States and in, in, in the Western world, you, everything is about anonymizing your, your subjects, your participants. Mm-hmm. You have to hide their names, you have to protect them. And what Sean's saying is like, that is antithetical to, to a indigenous way of knowing because there's not one person that knows anything knowledge is shared, knowledge is created collectively, knowledge is shared. And so actually I'm doing a disservice if I don't name the people I'm talking with because it's their knowledge that they've co-created that they're sharing with me. And so that really was kind of the first step for him saying, I've got to think about a different way. And the book is really accessible. It's like 140 pages long. We're actually, we added into our doctoral methods, our quantitative methods course, just to get students to think about things a little bit differently. And it totally transformed the way I think about research and assessment, especially this idea that no one person can hold knowledge, mm-hmm. that it's, it's held by the collective and not just a collective of people, it's held by the universe. So Sean talks about this connection between people, the cosmos, the land. And if, when, you begin, when I began to look deeper into the indigenous ways of knowing, the connection with land is really important. Because the land is connects the people and even the, the sense of time. And so there's there's a lot of things to, to learn just from an indigenous perspective. And then even within indigenous perspectives, there's there's variation. And, it, and we can also take a look at universal design, a very different way of taking a look at learning, how people gather knowledge. And I think there's some different ways that we can pull in other information, just how Anne and I are pulling in some other d- disciplines from our past degrees. We have to really pull in other other ways of knowing outside of Western higher education to really be able to do this work. Yeah, I was just going to add too to Gavin's and when we do a talk on this, I mean, just another quick example that kind of resonates with people. We think about learning outcomes, right? We have a learning outcomes framework, and it's probably been inherited. It was set, set by committee at, at some point in time, and then there was a faculty vote on it, and then now you're teaching your course, and it's you take learning outcome 2B and put it on your syllabus, right? It's not very inclusive. You don't know where it came from. Uh, is it very, feeling very authentic? And even then the epistemology behind the framework itself. So we have sort of this hierarchical Bloom's taxonomy that we are very used to. And we, you know, first we remember, then we understand, then we right up, up the hierarchy. Um, there's a great piece by Marcella Lefevre, um, switching from Bloom to the medicine wheel. And what she does is she unpacks what that means um, in terms of just the language itself. So even in her domain, she has, uh, it's a wheel and she has spiritual domain and others like in- intersecting with one another. They're not a hierarchy. And then also just the verbs, the, the, the word choice. It's things like meditate on or um, be aware of. I'm just, you know, even in our non-cognitive blooms, we're pretty cognitive. So um, what we then put forward is then what we measure and then we say, oh, these students didn't do well. And we may have been omitting a whole areas of what, um, how people see the world, how they learn, and what, what matters to them. And we're signaling through our assessment process the very things that are most important to you. We're not even going to measure it. Like it doesn't, it, 
it doesn't even matter to us. So that's another unconscious way. We think we've done all this great assessment work, but we could really be causing harm in that process and also missing a whole lot about our students. Well, and I think we can even interrogate our own Western way of knowing. As Anne right. mentioned, we really rely on quantitative approaches, particularly in assessment. That's because assess higher education assessment has come out, came out of evaluation, which is very quantitative, and we pretty much apply quantitative methods. You know, when we started doing assessment work in the late 90s in higher ed, there were no models, there were no guides, there were no books out there. And so we just tried to, we used what we knew, which were, you know, quantitative methods. And this whole assumption that we can be objective, we have to challenge that because we realize that we really cannot be objective. And so even using quantitative approaches that has that underlying assumption, and there are a lot of other underlying assumptions, such as this idea that all our students have the same experience, we know that they don't. And so there are limitations in and of the, the methods we use because they're based on this, um, this more positivistic paradigm that we use in higher education. Now, if we begin to look at different paradigms, it's to take a look at more interpretive paradigms, which I think we use a lot qualitative, but even moving through and applying critical theory, applying right. um, post-structuralism, and then eventually moving towards some, some transformative paradigms, which really takes a look at research in action and right. using research for change, not just improvement, but for change. That's how we can really change even our Western way of knowing and be a little bit more open and really move towards this idea of social using assessment for social justice. And, you know, to get really heady on this, I mean, it's really all of those things are sort of this neoliberal capitalistic compliance. Yeah. Right. So if we really unpack that with our academic self, <laughs> um, what we're, we're imposing, you know, onto our students all of these values that in other circumstances, particularly in student affairs, we're actually spending all our time trying to deconstruct or unpack or, you know, advocate against, right? So it, to me, it's just sort of like, there's this cognitive dissonance that we're able to hold somehow. And for me, the more I've learned and the more we talk about it, it's like, I can't, I can't hold those things anymore. I need to, I need to figure out, and it's very uncomfortable in the beginning. I mean, and I guess, um, uh, Gavin will mention this in a minute, but I'm writing a, co-authoring a book chapter and we're talking about individual awareness. And in the very beginning, my knee-jerk response was, well, I better learn everything there is to know about this. I'm going to read all the books. I'm going to right? which is a way of knowing. And it's been very good. But it's actually been more valuable to me uh, as I've deepened my own knowledge and taken responsibility for that to sit with other people who have other ways of knowing, to learn from folks who are trying on different practices and different cultural contexts on different campuses um, that are different from my own. And I, you know, at first I might not quite understand it, but as I, and it sits with me, I'm finding more and more ways where, you know, I, it's, it's easier for me to challenge some of these assumptions that I just thought were like immovable, you know, especially when I was doing my dissertation. I'm like, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> this has to be this way, right? And maybe it doesn't. And so I think that's, um, we try to teach our students that all the time. And I think it's, we need to probably be doing our own work in that way as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I think one of the things that what you're all talking about brings up for me is, you know, wh who, what are the mechanisms and what are the metrics that end up becoming the conversation and, and why do those things matter? Um, like what's motivating this very positivist, positivistic um, quantitative approach and is it because it's easy or it's um, and then and then it's like well wait a, wait a second should this be easy um, and the other the other part that also just really resonated with me having just completed my own dissertation um, process and, and writing a, a feminist narrative inquiry 
was mm -hmm. I can't I can't take my own story out of that story, right? Like the 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 role of the researcher, the lens on which I looked at the experience, um, because it the other part of it was that I wrote about a shared experience that I was also a part of. I think is another key piece of it. And so, as as student affairs educators on our campuses, you know, we are a part of that learning journey and that learning environment as well. And so, us kind of attending to our own need to be engaged in that process as much as much of like we you know how is it embedded in my experience versus just me looking in on what students are experiencing Absolutely. so when i think about um some of the things that student affairs like administrative leaders right so the the avps and the vps who are saying to departments you know we need to promote assessment we need to also promote inclusion and social justice um, I, I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, the, not only just the, we'll get to the kind of the day to day, but like, what does it mean to promote this broadly in a, at a university level or at a divisional level um, so that the people with whom they're engaging um, and then, of, of course, the students who are participating feel like the assessment is is for social justice versus just kind of a performative um, mentality. So Gavin, do you want to pick up that thread and, and of course, jump yeah. in? Yeah, I'll start and then Anne can add in. I think, Heather, what you just mentioned about your the way you approached your dissertation is one of the things that Anne and I talk about, this idea of readiness. Because it, it, it just as Anne talked about, we have some assessment people who are great about assessment. They're ready to do assessment. They're not necessarily ready for DEI and vice versa for DEI folks. And I think we both have realized that, you know, this is a journey for us as well, is that, you know, I've become more ready. I'm far from there yet in terms of my, um, my knowledge base and my experience and even comfortability with diversity, equity, and inclusion. But we can't even begin to look at assessment for social justice until we're, we, there's a, a level of individual readiness and organizational readiness. And so some of it, and it's, Anne and I talk about in one of our book chapters, that one of the first steps to start with yourself is really beginning to understand your own identities, the intersection of your own identities. And when we, Anne and I started talking about that, that's when I became came to this realization that like, holy cow, I can't believe what I haven't thought about this for the 20 years I've been doing assessment. How much damage have I done? How much power and oppression have I perpetuated because I haven't challenged the, the, just the, the basic processes we take for granted? And so I think there's some readiness there. Some of it can be through you know, reading, some of it can be through conversation. Um, it's, it's a journey, you know, but just starting someplace to understand your role in all this work um, is helpful. So you don't even need to go into these different ways of knowing, just doing some exploration around yourself is helpful. And I think there's also some organizational readiness because some, there's some organizations which are really ready to do assessment work, some are really ready to do DEI work, some that are not ready for either of that, but you can't do both of those together until you build some of that readiness. And so I think some of that's creating space and taking stuff off of people's plates so they can learn more about that we really can't do a good job about using um, assessment equitably let alone assessment for social justice if people don't have the knowledge and skills to be able to do that and you know there i think there's some other things that are probably not as important in our daily work that we could take off our plate and add in these higher priority things because really thinking about using assessment in this way to change higher education that has long-term benefits for not only our students, but for the society in general. And so I think that's really one place to think about it. Another thing, Brian Bork talks about using inquiry 
approach, which I'm really, I'm really intrigued about, and I'm starting to use this on my own campus too for our institutional assessment committee, is really going back to the roots of assessment about what's working, what's not working. Think about inquiry, asking questions. So it really helps move the conversation from I'm doing assessment from in a transactional way. I've got to gather data to collect data for accreditation, to demonstrate effectiveness, to get money, whatever those transactions are to really understanding what's working, what's not working and be able to transform our organizations. And so simply just shifting our frame of reference and thinking about inquiry, I think is helpful. And then this can be super overwhelming for folks. You know, people are like, I can't, I'm scared to even do assessment. I can't even think about doing it in a socially just way. Start small. And we'll, and we'll talk about this in terms of specific strategies, but one is take a look at the demographic items you do in a survey. We're not suggesting get rid of surveys to their benefits to doing surveys. They're just not the end all be all. And there are some purposes for that. We just need to kind of um, bracket what those, what those purposes are. But take a look at how we actually, how do we define gender? Mm -hmm. How do we define race and ethnicity? Is gender man or male, female, and other? Which obviously is sex, not gender. And then you just have one other option for other. And then even like race and ethnicity, choose one out of these five options. You know, we know that's not how people are, you know, and that even if we allowed them to check as many boxes that they wanted, that really doesn't even represent intersectionality. We can let them write in their own identity, but that causes some challenges from an assessment perspective. But who knows, in some instances, that may be the best approach, which I've done in some evaluations, so they're a small scale. Um, but it's having those questions and thinking thoughtfully about that. So even just starting with demographic options, that'd be a really good place to start. And as Ann mentioned, involve students. This is one of the easiest ways to do social, to do assessment in a, in a socially just way, because they're going to give us different perspectives. Um, I've been out of um, college now, oh gosh, 35 years, I think. And so it's very different now. And so I think just involving students in different steps of the process can help us think very differently about it. Mm -hmm. And what do you think, uh, well, I, I was thinking about a couple of things there. One is that um, I think, Heather, tying this whole conversation back to student success um, is a way that gets the, I think, the institutional conversation, the need for, um, you know, compliance, uh, strategic planning, accreditation, all that in with the, the, the wheelhouse of student affairs, right? So because we're all committed. And we've known that. And I think it's interesting, even in my work with um, campus labs, um, you know, the early conversations a few years ago were more like trying to convince academic affairs colleagues or institutional folks that what we do matters, like that was sort of top of mind, and using assessment to do that. I feel like COVID and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all the other social um, things that are arising right now for us have just sort of like blown that off the table. And people are like um, coming back with a clear deck and it's like, okay, wait a minute, what? How are our students doing? Which students are suffering? Are, are already marginalized students even further marginalized? What are we going to do about it? like those real conversations and questions are not just student affairs folks, but it's um, presidents asking this question. It's chancellors meetings. It's accreditors making sure that you report out on the outcomes for equity, not just, you know, enrollment patterns. Right. So I just think if as student affairs folks, we can take our best strengths as student success advocates and just apply those logically to the assessment process. And I think we'll find a conversation that's institutionally meaningful and, and relevant right now. Um, it's definitely a door. So true. Yeah, so true. I uh, It's so interesting that you brought that up because we were just um, at this college student success conversation, um, which in incorporates mostly folks on the academic side of the house. Right. 
um, talking about student success. And the provost had just recently at MSU commissioned a survey of undergraduate students to understand who's and how have various uh, students been disproportionately affected by um, MSU's you know, pretty abrupt pivot in the second week of August to completely online um, school for undergraduate students. And so I was looking at the survey questions and I was like, wait a second, we're missing um, the out of class engagement. And we know on the student affairs side of the house anecdotally that our students are, are looking for ways to, to dial into communities to feel that sense of belonging. But all of the questions were about you know, did they have the academic resources that they needed to be successful? Um, how were their classes utilizing technology or how many different apps were being required for different classes? And I'm like, okay, those are question, important questions too. And we also needed to know about um, the community's connections and sense of support and mental health issues and, and then um, look at those different populations as well. So the demographic uh, point that you made also, Gavin, is so mm -hmm. key. Because um, if we're just tying it at to the institutional to the student information system, there's information we don't collect about students' identities. Um, right. So, and we just so, did a survey, Heather, too. That is, um, and I, I'll give it to you to add to the yeah. resources. But um, uh, we designed it at at Anthology, uh, and we surveyed students who are currently enrolled about how they were feeling before, like last spring and when the pandemic first hit and now both about their re-enrollment intentions, but also their co-curricular experiences. So um, oh and we gosh. just finished writing a white paper about that. So I'll, um, I'll send that to you. Um, but we found the interesting thing, I'll just put this back on the, the dynamic there was, we did ask students um, to either self-identify around uh, gender, race, and ethnicity. And also we had some prefigured um, categories and they could check all that apply. And it's interesting because we then faced the same dilemma ourselves, which was to say, uh, we took a look at the data and then we're, we were saying, what is it, how is it meaningful to disaggregate this? And when I disaggregate only by gender, like what does this actually, what, why am I doing that? And what is that telling us? And what is valuable to report out? We ultimately decided from a national survey um, that we couldn't find something meaningful, but our advice to campuses is, if you're on your campus, we're telling you a trend, you can take that, you can go find out for your own campus because it's going to differ at MSU than it is at a community college than it is at a small private. So it's not actually helpful. We can, we can be the marker to point to some broad trends, but go back to your own data on your own campus and find out the lived experience for those yeah. populations of students. Yeah, I just want to say I dug into um, your website and looked at a bunch of different options and different survey samples. And, and what I love about um, the Campus Labs anthology um, portal is that you have people sharing their information across campuses. Um, so it's fantastic to be able to also um, have that resource as well. So, Anne, can you talk a little bit about some of these day-to-day -day practices then too? I and mean, we've been kind of weaving those in, but what are those um, those folks who are who are in charge of assessment within their um, department and maybe not the divisional level but more the department level? Um, how can they become more aware of equity in their daily assessment practices? Well, I think the first piece is what Gavin mentioned, which is um, start with themselves and and sort of um, both individually like think about identity, privilege, power, positionality, whatever that means for where you are in your campus. So and do do your own work. Um, and, and, and engage with others in conversation. I know um, Gavin and I are part of some um, 
some case studies that NILOA, the National Institute for Learning Outcomes Assessment, has published. And one of those is Wake Forest, their Student Affairs um, Assessment Committee, I believe it is. They spent a whole year in self-study. And so I thought that was a really interesting approach around equity-centered practices. So they broke up into some smaller groups. They looked at their own data, they gathered resources, and then they went back and, and they, they tried really hard, I think, to rethink what they had been doing maybe habitually and how that might differ. So I think maybe starting with a plan like that, not being overwhelmed, as Gavin said, but then maybe looking at like one project by, you know, that's something that's either been done uh, longitudinally before or that has always been done and step back into some reflection questions. Um, this blog post that we, CG and I wrote, has some reflection questions in it. So ways to, to say to yourself, um, am I thinking about the framework that this is embedded in, you know, if it's a learning outcomes um, assessment? Um, did, what did we do with the, how did we ask the demographic question or did we not, and, and how thoughtful were we in that process? Um, what was our approach to disaggregating the data? Did we disaggregate it? If so, why? And by which variables? And was it relevant? Sometimes we actually do more harm there because we ask questions and we intend not to do anything at all. It's not even relevant to the topic, right? So, um, and then other times when it would be very relevant, we omit that and now we can't, we can't uh, compare uh, different uh, uh, ways of thinking or different lived experiences. So I think those are some of the things. Um, I would also say, especially at a department level or a divisional level, finding out and at attaching to that larger institutional conversation and just bringing the student affairs perspective around equity to the table, because I think people are ready to hear it now. Um, I think that retention, persistence, student success, um, accreditation, those are all top of mind right now. And so mm -hmm. looking at what you already have, as Gavin says, it may not be not collecting new data. It may be going back to existing co-curricular data that, and, and conversations that you've had with students and bring that to bear alongside the academic um, classroom remote or otherwise experience. And the one thing I would add is the is you shifting our question. So assessment is typically yeah. about what? What's happening? What's working? Shifting to, and I think I, I'll steal it from Simon Sinek, start with why. Why is that happening? So if we're disaggregating data and realize that some student populations are either not succeeding, however we define that, the same as others, why is that happening? We can't stop with the what, because if we're really gonna use assessment for social justice, we need solutions to the problems, not just description of the problems. And so I think even, and that's where assessment can be really powerful is helping us to come up with those solutions, but we need to know why something's happening the way that it is. If students are not learning remotely the same way they are in, in class, why is that happening? Is it access to resources? Is it the, the learning's different? Is it the instructors are not prepared to teach? Because each one of those requires different solutions. And so we can't provide a solution, an evidence-based solution without gathering, answering the why question. Otherwise, we're gonna do what we typically do, we see the data and we make anecdotal, well, we should do this, we should do this. It's not based on evidence at all. And so if we really wanna be as effective and efficient with the resources we have to serve our students best, we need to answer those why questions and use assessment data for that. I think one other thing I would add, Heather, I'm working with a campus right now. Um, it's their institutional strategic plan, but I think this is um, uh, relevant at the division level or the department level. They are actually, the president at this campus is actually wanting to, to strategically embed the equity conversation. So she had already hired some folks 
to work on diversity, equity, metrics, and outcomes. And so um, instead of going those two different ways, right? We're writing a strategic plan. We're working on diversity and equity. Um, we've been collaborating together. So the director of diversity and equity, the president and I meet together and their institutional research office is right at the front end of that conversation to say, what are the metrics? What data do we already have so we don't reinvent a wheel? And how are we going to measure success in these various? So that's just to think an example of starting at the beginning to say, what are we aiming towards? What are our goals? The why? And then not create all these other separate processes, but really create what equity is not an extra thing. It's not an afterthought. It's not something different that we do. It's not like item five in the strategic plan. It should be embedded through everything that we do. And so what are the ways that we haven't structurally done that so far? And can we think about, and that will actually clear some space to do deeper work, right? Because we're not sort of caught up in all these bureaucracies that are maybe overlapping or um, redundant. So I think it, it will open open opportunities for us. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, I will say, I think when I when we had this conversation at the institutional level about what questions we're asking, I think one of the positive things was that receptivity that you all spoke about, but then also this idea that we, we need to all be working towards that. Why? And then we collect the data, then, okay, what are we going to do with it? And I know our folks in our undergraduate education office are very interested in if we collect data, how do we put that into some kind of actionable um, plan uh, so that we're addressing the needs that, that students are, are really experiencing. Um, so I like that. I like that question a lot. So please tell me you all are writing something about this because we, we, it sounds to me like the resources and Gavin mentioned this, and I think it's kind of funny when you look back at like how, how right. recent the, the literature on assessment in student affairs really is. Um, but as far as I know, where does inclusive equity centered um, assessment research live right now and 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 do you have some resources that you can point to and I know you all are are working on a project as well so yeah. Gavin tell us a little bit about that yep so um, and myself and then some folks from the National Institute for Learning Arts and Assessment um, Niloa so it's Natasha Jankowski Janina Baker and Eric Montenegro who actually Eric is now working with Credential Engine are working are co-editing or co-authoring a book on equity-minded equity-centered assessment we're still trying to define the title but it's going to be something <laughs> like assessment as essential for student learning and success designing for transformation. That's what it was in the proposal, who knows what it's gonna end up in. But essentially our goal is to publish uh, a one-stop shop. So if you really wanna get started, you know, where do you go? And you know, Anne and I have been aggregating all these resources and we're the, our, you know, our folders are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> but it's almost gonna be a point that's overwhelming. And so we're trying to hone that down. And so the purpose of that book is really to be able to provide some background on why this is important, why we're looking at equity and, and assessment is important, what are the conversations happening, you know, in the different parts of higher education? Um, and then what's the scholarship like around? What's the current state of scholarship to be able to help to identify where that's happening? What are the different ways to approach this? And then the rest of the book are, are case studies. So examples of people putting this in practice. But that's the biggest challenge right now. People are like, I get the concepts, but it's too theoretical. What does this look like in practice? And how is it doable in practice? And so that's where the, the editing is coming in fast. So we're kind of co-authoring some of the foundational chapters. And then the case studies are coming up from other folks who are doing this kind of work. And the reason Anne and I connected is because CAS, um, Anthology, and then Nilo had collaborated on case studies. 
And then when we were doing this, I think we were probably attending one of the assessment conferences and talking about this. We said, it just seems like people need something. You know, the sessions are packed every single time. It doesn't matter if it's the last session of the day, the first session in the morning, it's packed because people really want this information. And so we figured the time was pretty right for that. But while that, while we're still working on that, we're hope, our hope is that that will be out at the end of 2021 or at least early 2022 um, for the student affairs um, conferences. Um, the Niloa Equity webpage, uh, which will, I know Heather will put in the show notes, Great resources there. There are a set of what are called equity responses. Um, the best paper to read is the culturally responsive assessment piece by Montenegro and Jankowski, which really kind of started a lot of this in higher assessment. And then they invited a lot of folks to actually provide responses. Anne and I wrote one a couple of years ago, and people are just adding more and more. So they're great perspectives about equity and assessment. Like a dialogue. And also, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the, the case studies are there as well. And they're adding more, more case studies about, you know, what are people doing on their campuses around that? There are some other resources in terms of like some key documents that, that you can share. And then I think if people want to get started, here are some things to really take a look at. We also have some recorded sessions. So the benefit of COVID is that every single conference went virtual and a lot of them were free. And so Anne and I presented at most of them, I think, um, on this topic. And so um, we can share some of the, the links to those. If you're more of a, you know, Anne and I are readers, but if you're more a watcher and a listener, um, we have some recorded sessions which really kind of talk, give it a foundation, at least of, sort of the continuum of some of that work. And then finally, if you are interested, we, um, we are keynoting the Institute on the Curricular Approach for ACPA, which actually starts on Friday, um, but our keynote is next Friday the 11th, but registration is still open. If you wanna learn more about the curricular approach in student affairs, and they're adding in some equity conversations in there. So Anne and I will be um, sharing some of our thoughts in a couple weeks. So those are the key ones I have, but I know Anne's got a ton more. Well, I'll add just a couple more to, and we'll, we'll make sure that Heather's, uh, um, at Anthology, we're trying, we, Gavin and I, we did a survey a couple of years ago. It's out, out of date now. We're going to probably redo it, but um, we did some webinars and we also recorded some podcasts with some great folks um, with Gavin and I facilitating just on this topic. So uh, that's on um, a, a webpage. I would also highly recommend all of Elise Ben-Simone's work at the University of Southern California Center for Urban Justice. Um, she and others, colleagues have got the equity scorecard. So if you're really looking at metrics and how um, this is um, not California specific, but the state of California is very focused on this in ways that a lot of us could learn from in terms of how funding is allocated around equity outcomes. Um, and so their work is, shows models and ways to approach that. Um, and then Nessie um, has some things on like disaggregating data and inclusive data sharing. And so there's, a, there's several resources that when you drill down into one specific thing, uh, people are starting to really develop resources in these different areas. Uh, so uh, we'll share everything that we've sort of unearthed here with you all. And um, we, we see ourselves always, I think, as facilitators of just an ongoing dialogue and a conversation. And every time we present, we learn new things that are fascinating and and another aha moment happens for us so uh, we are we invite people to email us or be in touch with us as well i love it i just flipped through the documents that you all added and the the references that you put in the google doc um, which we'll add to the show notes uh, and oh my goodness this is a treasure trove of of resources so thank you so much for sharing that um, with our audience. And yes, uh, Keith Edwards, as you know, co-host here on Student Affairs Now was thrilled that um, we were going to have this 
this podcast episode out this week um, because of ICA and because of you all keynoting. So thank you for your work um, with that as well. So I wish we had more time for our conversation. It always goes quickly. Um, but as we conclude, as you know, the podcast is called Student Affairs Now. And really quickly, I'd like to hear what each of you are pondering, questioning, or troubling now. Um, all right, Gavin, I'll start with you. So for me, it's um, I, I want to try to think about how do we move to a national movement or national strategy around equity-centered assessment? And what does that look like? And because there's certainly an interest in that, um, but how can we build something more and a, um, a, a connected approach to this? So it's not just happening in pockets. And so we're trying to figure out like, how can we actually do this and how can we collaborate with other organizations to really kind of move this forward? Because there's certainly a need. Um, there are huge discrepancies in life opportunities um, for individuals um, with college degrees compared to students with uh, individuals without college degrees. There are societal benefits to all of this. And so there's really no reason not to do it. Um, but it's trying to figure out how to do it on a, on a, on, at scale. Um, beyond what's happening in individual departments or even at some campuses. So that's what I'm kind of thinking about right now. Yeah, yeah same question me, to you. Yeah, for me, it's, um, I'm, you know, I, I'm in a dialogue. I've always worked remote since I started working for Campus Labs, but then now everybody's remote, right? So I'm uh, talking to student affairs folks uh, in their homes and, you know, since last March and on through it. For me, it's it's really how do we re-envision student affairs? And I think we need assessment to do that because I think that was already a conversation that was happening, right? You know, what, what is our relevance? Um, what really counts as, I'll use air quotes, as student affairs? What is the co-curriculum? Um, but, you know, the pandemic for sure has definitely kind of blown that open. And I don't think we're going backwards. Um, so what does going forward look like? Um, and so what does it mean to restructure, um, you know, roles, jobs? What's the pathway and the pipeline for young professionals uh, entering the field? It doesn't look the same as when all of us probably entered. And so um, how can we help uh, kind of unpack some of the structural barriers that might have been there before? and really rethink student success. I mean, to me, that's what it always comes back to. Gavin mentioned it, you know, the college degree is still the pathway um, that we that is needed in this country, at least at this moment in history. And so how do we make that a more equitable, both access experience and experience while they're there? And then how do we really help students um, move into uh, meaningful lives, you know, after they're not with us anymore. Um, and I just, I've always thought about that as a student affairs practitioner, but it just really feels really, um, I don't know, more, more imperative than it has um, in the past. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, thank you both so much for your time today um, as guests on Student Affairs Now. Thanks always to our sponsor, Anthology. And for those of you watching or listening, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Student Affairs Now newsletter, or you can browse our archives, our growing archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Uh, if you subscribe to the podcast on everywhere you can get your podcasts, um, invite others, share it on social, or if you feel so inclined, leave a five-star review. This helps keep conversations like this reaching more folks and building a community. Um, again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks to the fabulous guests and for everybody who's watching and listening. Make it a great week and be well, everyone. Mm -hmm.